Turn with me or listen along uh, to Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 32. We've been taking such small chunks in Exodus, but suddenly I think we'll be finding for some time we'll be again taking larger chunks again. Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door uh, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these uh, three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him or if he is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, And he does not die, but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of of his eye and if he knocks out the tooth of his of his male or female servant he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth if an ox gores a man or a woman to death then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted but if the ox tended uh, to thrust with its horn in times past and it has been made known to his owner and if he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. 
Whether it is gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and we acknowledge that uh, every word of yours is like the bread from heaven which descends and which nourishes your people. And we ask you, therefore, O God, that you would this evening nourish us by your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, we have now, uh, for two sermons, been considering... uh, Well, that's not true. Uh, For one sermon, Moses on the mountain. Before that, it was the people at the foot of the mountain. After that, it was Moses ascended into the darkness on the mountain and met with God. And last time we saw the first uh, commandment that God expounded to Moses to then tell to the people on the mountain. And that was the second commandment. But here, beginning in chapter 21 and through uh, 22 and the majority of 23. So the majority of Moses time on the mountain, the Lord uh, deals with laws that concern Uh, societal relations or civil relations and in particular the two laws which God is expounding upon here in these verses is the fifth and the sixth commandment which I read earlier Uh, the duties of inferiors to superiors the fifth commandment and our duties concerning the life of our neighbor the sixth commandment and so as I say we're in the midst of an extending consideration of laws which concern relations between men If in the prior sermon it was relation between man and God. And specifically, let us see, I'm going to make a great deal of this in this sermon, that these were laws that were meant to govern the nation of Israel. Uh, And so, again, they were civil laws. We actually call them that, the civil law of Israel. Laws for the nation. And as we deal with this extended legal code, which begins here, and really which makes up so much of the remainder of the Pentateuch, It will eventually take us into an extending consideration of laws which concern the priesthood. I will confess that some of these sermons may seem a bit tedious at times as we consider the legal framework of uh, Israel's theocracy. We are going through a detailed consideration of the law. But having conceded this fact... I would also say that I can think of no portion of scripture with greater relevance to our times than these. For the simple reason that the false gospel of social justice is wreaking havoc upon the church. And the question is, what is our response to be? Are we equipped to handle such an assault on biblical truth? Well, you can only counter a false view with a true one. There's a thousand lies, but only one truth. And it is just here, this moment, that we are dealing with the social dynamics in society that social justice today claims to address the relations between man and man on a societal level. Here is precisely where the Bible deals with such an issue. And here we gain a sense of true justice or biblical justice, as Vody Bauckham puts it, in contrast to Social justice. We get a glimpse again of biblical justice. And so as we think of the ethics that are supposed to govern social situations, human interactions on the societal level, 
There is practically no portion of scripture which has greater relevance than the legal code that we are presently considering. Am I arguing for a return to a theocracy? Am I saying that we should live precisely as they lived here? Not at all, as I hope to make clear. But I am very interested in the ethics that are found in this portion of Scripture. And I would also note that those uh, proponents of social justice, more commonly than not, find their ethics from the Old Testament. And so we're only arguing with them on their own terms. Well, I want to divide uh, this sermon under two headings. The first, very simply, is uh, the specific provisions of this law or the laws themselves. And there are there are numerous laws. I want to summarize them as briefly as I can and as clearly as I can. Uh, Although I confess at times I'm not altogether clear exactly what is being described here, but I will do my best. I'm far more interested in under the second point to consider the general equity of the law as it applies to us today. Uh, but let me try as best I can to summarize this legal code as it stood in Israel. It begins in verse one with the judgments. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. The Lord speaking to Moses. Another way we could translate that. And I'm not sure if any translation does. You can tell me if yours does is rights. Judgments or rights. Now, this is an interesting phrase. And I confess my dependence on the authorities. It could be taken either way, apparently, either as judgments or rights. And it really has a a different sense, uh, depending on the word you translate it as. If it means judgments, then it means that these are the judgments that rulers were to render in particular cases, which does make sense of what we have here. Uh, But Kyle and Dillich argue, uh, and who am I to argue with them, that it actually means rights, not the judgments which the rulers were to render in specific cases, but the rights which the people possessed in the context of civil society. And if that is the case, then the, 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 the sense is something like this. These constitute, say Kyle and Dillich, the rights by which the national life was, not, national life was formed into a civil commonwealth And the political order secured. These rights had reference, first of all, to the relation in which the individual stood to one another, end quote. The rights which the individual had himself in relation to other individuals, the rights of the individuals. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's something obviously which we Americans hold very dear. And I'm going to go with Kylan Dillich on this, as I typically do. So the word means rights. It has to do with the rights which people possess. I'm going to come back to this in the second part of the sermon. As we look at the actual uh, legal code, then that which follows, here are the rights which belong to the people. We see provisions with respect to the fifth commandment. First, the relations of inferiors to superiors. You remember our understanding of the fifth commandment is not simply located Uh, In the home, although the home is discussed here, the relation of the parents and the children, but all relationships in which there is a hierarchy in society, relations of inferiors to superiors. He begins uh, in both cases with servants, but he begins with the rights of manservants and uh, speaking specifically of Hebrew slaves and uh, who were men. Verses two through six, the thought being that uh, they were only to be slaves for six years and on the seventh year they were to be freed except in certain uh, provisions 
or, or conditions where they might choose to remain in servitude, such as if they were married while they were slaves and the, the wife was to remain a slave, and so they chose to remain married under conditions of slavery. Uh, secondly, uh, the rights of maidservants, verses 7 through 11. Now, one of the things we notice, and I'm going to expand upon this later, is that the rights of manservants and maidservants were different. God is making a distinction. He is not saying that everybody has the same rights. You don't have this notion of equality uh, that I will come back to. Nevertheless, the rights of maidservants are, uh, or are maintained by the Lord. The Lord is advocating, you might say, in a setting, let us remember, and I was just reminded of this studying a separate issue altogether, that slavery in the ancient world was terribly brutal. This is something we're going to see. Uh, it was common for the masters to beat and certainly to mistreat their slaves. And the Lord is saying, you may not do that. Uh, in Israel, you may not do that. You may not mistreat your slaves you ought to regard these maid servants. Uh, these indeed are the daughters of Israel. These were female Hebrew slaves. Uh, and there's various things that the Lord says there. Uh, but the sense is, in essence, you may not mistreat them, even if you find them displeasing. And this isn't the sort of uh, maid you might say that you would have your, your son marry, which is often the arrangement that you would have in those days. Uh, you nevertheless may not mistreat her. And so the Lord, as I say, is advocating the rights of uh, what we could call, again, we will come back to this, but the least of these, the lessers of society. But then we have provisions with respect to the sixth commandment, beginning in verse 12, provisions that is to say that have to do with life. And the first uh, set of provisions which have to do with the sixth commandment are what we could call capital crimes. First, in verses 12 through 14, we have the crime of murder, which the Lord says is a capital crime. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And then in verses 13 and 14, the Lord distinguishes between the intentional and the unintentional killing. The unintentional killing, what we would call manslaughter, was not a capital crime. The man might flee to a city of refuge and be safe there from the avenger, but the man who did so pre, with premeditated determination was, uh, was to be put to death. Uh, he was not, it, it even says, enabled to go and seek refuge at the altar. Uh, because you couldn't kill a man in the presence of the altar. If he was denied a place at the altar, you shall surely put him to death. And so God upholds the sixth commandment there. But then we have... Uh, and this has something to do with uh, this, the fifth commandment, obviously, laws concerning children. And here we get a sense uh, of the strictness and the severity of the theocracy, something we're going to see again and again. That the, that the child who cursed his parent or the child that struck his parent was to be put to death. This is actually a capital crime, it says. Equally, verse 16, the servant uh, or, or the servant who was stolen, the man who steals another man, kidnaps another man or what we call man stealing in order to enlist him in slavery is to be put to death. There is another capital crime, but then you have a subset, a further subset of the sixth commandment. Again, what you notice is that the fifth commandment is still assumed in these. 
as the various relations and hierarchies are considered. Here, not to do with death, but with bodily injuries that may or may not lead to death and how those should be dealt with. And so uh, let me just briefly pass through these laws regarding quarreling in which or, or, or which we would call assault or battery. If two men are fighting and one is injured and the man is lying on his bed to recover, the one uh, who struck him is to pay for uh, his medical care, you might say. So laws of restitution. Laws regarding beating or correcting servants, verses 20 and 21. Uh, you have the inadvertent quarrel which harms the woman with child, verses 22 and 23. The Lord uh, specifically is saying that the woman with child is in a special class. And it is there, interestingly, that the Lord states the principle of lex talionis, which is uh, the law of retribution. Let me read it again. He says, if any if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. That is harm to the mother or the child. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Specifically in that case, the Lord gives, again, the law of lex talionis, the law of retribution, which we're going to consider in a bit. Uh, I will just note here that we have that quoted in uh, in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, when the Lord says, you've heard that it was said, and then he quotes this. And many, it would seem, based upon that, think that Jesus is overturning Lex Talionis, but he isn't. He's correcting those who imagined this was a code of personal ethics. So if someone hit you, you got to hit them back. That's really how children live, isn't it? But that is not how adults are supposed to live. But the point is, certainly if you think of what the Lord is saying here, he's protecting the woman with child. And saying that a man cannot harm the woman or the child without going punished. And certainly Jesus had no interest in overturning that. He is, uh, the Lord is here speaking of civil ethics, not personal ethics. Then you have laws which regard uh, injuring a servant. And finally, verses 26 and 27. And then laws, verses 28 through 32, with regard uh, to the ox goring. The fact that if your ox kills uh, someone else, you are responsible for that. All right. There, in essence, is the summary of the law. Uh, we may still have our questions, but that is, in essence, what you have. A far greater interest is what I would call, uh, under the second point, the general equity of such laws. What is the value of them today? Uh, and and, and th- what I'm saying here is something that I think we're going to come back to again and again, because uh, if we just locate these laws as having relevance to Israel and the theocracy, then, in essence, none of what is said here has any value or any relevance to us today. But that is not the reform view, and that's not my view, and it shouldn't be your view. We do believe that even though these laws had a specific setting, nevertheless, they have relevance to today. And that's really our great interest. And so these were laws that governed Israel as a theocracy. They were not a democracy or, or a representative republic as our country is or a monarchy as some countries are they were a theocracy and because this is true this uh, we are not theonomous at least I hope we're not this prevents us from drawing what I would call direct lines from these laws to our own situation we are not trying to reproduce what the Lord described here that is not our goal we must appreciate the redemptive historical contours present in the giving of such laws. 
However, that does not preclude discovering what the Westminster Confession calls the general equity of the civil laws of Israel for our own situation. The political and the civil sphere will always require certain things to be present in order for there to be true justice. And so there will, of course, be parallels. That's how I would describe it. Not direct lines, but parallels between Israel's civil situation and ideally our civil situation if we are also a just society and it will become increasingly clear that we are not. And that is something that is obviously true because true justice resides with God. It does not reside with man. It is not a human idea. It is not a human construct. It's not a social construct. Justice as a concept is only that which is consistent with the divine attribute of justice and the divine order and the divine government. Any deviation from justice as a divine attribute on the plane of human relations is precisely what constitutes injustice. And so our interest is justice. And scripture has a great deal to say, justice in the civil sphere. And, and, uh, and scripture has a great deal to say on the subject. Well, I have several headings here that I want to consider as a kind of framework for navigating these chapters uh, going forward. And I want to begin with this idea of the theocracy and the general equity in the civil sphere today. Again, Israel was a theocracy. There's no use in denying that. We can't see what her purpose was in redemptive history, nor how her situation has any relevance to ours until we see this and what it means exactly. What it was God was doing in constituting her civil and religious life in a theocratic fashion. And so we must think first of what theocracy means and how it functions. So I've used that word a lot. Let me define it now. And this will explain again the nature of the laws which the Lord gave and the structure of the society that Israel was supposed to maintain. Uh, theocracy involves the conjoining of the priestly and the kingly class. The civil and the ecclesiastical church and state, the conjoining, the bringing together, the intermeshing of these two things. The society as governed by the state under theocracy takes on a priestly form, just as the priests, we will later see, were involved in rendering judgments in civil cases. And this idea stands out most clearly in what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that they were to be a kingdom of priests. The priestly and the kingly brought together, the civil and the ecclesiastical, both aspects brought together in one. You did not have church and state as separate entities. They were commingled. They were interwoven and they overlapped in the civil sphere. Another prominent feature of a theocracy is that the laws are given by God directly, which is what the idea and the word conveys. It is the direct rule of God himself. The civil laws which are given by God. The idea that the code uh, of law is found in the Bible. Not, uh, not a civil contract between men which they discover through natural law. But again, a code which they find in the Bible. And this is something that mirrors the life and the perfect rule and order of heaven. Heaven is a theocracy. God there rules directly. You don't have... Uh, you don't have intermediaries. There's two further comments which I want to make about the theocracy uh, from Gerhardus Voss. 
and I'm summarizing him here, I'm not quoting him. He, he says, in the theocratic arrangement where the religious and the civil are intertwined and interwoven, this is an important point to make as we're drawing the parallels. The religious unquestionably has the prominence. We are considering civil laws, but it is the religious tenor of those laws which has the prominence. The religious aspect is meant to stand out most clearly and most prominently in the civil life of a theocracy. Second, as a result of this, the theocracy of Israel has far more value in anticipating the church than it does future civil societies. There are principles here uh, which have greater relevance to the church, to what the church will become uh, far more than in what future societies will become. This is a point which must be underscored very strongly. The church, the Israel as a theocracy is far better a tutor of churchly life than of civil life. As many of the ethics of the theocracy have no relevance or possible application once the religious element is taken out. And so they apply not to society, but to the church today more often than not. But that's not to say that there's no value for civil society, especially when we're considering the subject, again, of justice and civil, uh, the civil form of justice. For without justice, there can be no society. And there's, there's no greater need today than that we should be clear what is meant by justice, since the word is so often used, but rarely is it defined. But it is precisely here once more that Israel's theocracy is such great value in helping us. We get a glimpse into what a just society actually looks like when God sets the rules. And insofar as we see true justice at work in civil society, we discover the general equity of the law for today. The second thing I want to notice is that uh, from verse one, every society must have judgments or rights which the people enjoy. If there are no rights, even of the least of society, there could be no justice. There is only tyranny. That is something which is always true. And consider, especially if you look at what is said here, the rights which are in view. They all concern what you might call the least of these or those who are the victims of crimes. Those whose rights are often forgotten, especially in a tyrannical situation and especially in a society with, with a strong hierarchy as Israel was. In such a setting, tyranny is not inevitable, but it is highly likely. And the Lord is seeking to curtail that by advocating the rights of the lessers. Because the bottom, those at the bottom are so easily mistreated. Now notice... When we are, again, defining justice, how God proposes for man to deal with the reality that those at the bottom are most easily mistreated. And notice first what he does not say. He does not propose, as men do today, to get rid of the hierarchy. The way to get rid of the problem is to get rid of the hierarchy. To say that there can only be true justice when there is no such thing as hierarchy and advantage and distinction. That isn't what the Lord says. His solution is rather far simpler, again, which I've already said, and that is to make provisions for the, the just treatments 
of those in the inferior position to assert assert their rights within the God-given hierarchy and order of society. And so the second point, again, is that every society must have the rights which the people enjoy. But then uh, under the third point, I want to look at the idea of justice, the principle of justice or the foundation of all true justice, which is stated explicitly in verses 24 and 25. The principle of lex talionis, the law of retribution or the law of just retribution, that would be just talionis. Uh, But it's also assumed throughout eye for eye, tooth for tooth and so on. The thought is simply that the punishment must match the crime. It's a very straightforward thought. But it turns out that idea is very controversial. What the Lord is saying is that the the punishment, again, not the law, but the punishment, must be no more or less severe than the crime warrants. To be too lenient with respect to a certain crime is to encourage further crime. And it is to make a mockery of the victim's. To be too severe is to encourage tyranny. And justice precludes both both ideas. Both fall short of the idea of what we should call biblical justice. The idea is this. Let a man be punished for his sin. You notice there is no idea of collective guilt here. Only individual guilt. There's also no punishment of the children for the sins of the parents. Later on, that is repudiated specifically. The children will not suffer for the sins of the parents. It is only the soul that sins that shall die. That is true biblical justice. But we also notice, and surely this is equally reprehensible and explicitly rejected by today's proponents of social justice. And that is that the just outcomes which the Lord envisions here through the punishment of the wrongdoer, they assume and they take into account the various stations and circumstances of the various parties. What you see is that true biblical justice takes into account the distinctions which exist in society. The distinctions, there are four, between parents and children, you find that here, between servants and masters, between women and men, and between rich and poor. That distinction is present throughout. And uh, the law is applied variously in these various stations. The law, as a just application of the righteousness of God, does not as the advocates of critical social justice seek to do, pursue justice by eliminating these distinctions. It does not suggest that you can have no justice until there are no distinctions at all, and that the presence of the distinctions themselves are the result of injustice, and always the evidence of injustice. That's what's being argued today. And that's the ideology that is not just creeping, but flooding the church and even the Reformed church. And yet I would say how alien is such a thought to biblical justice. Biblical justice takes into account the distinctions and the hierarchy as something that God has ordained as proper. And then it demands that justice itself reflect and uphold the order of society. Because this is true, it is a greater crime for an inferior to sin against a superior than the reverse. It's one of the most difficult things for us to accept, the modern egalitarian American spirit, and yet that is what God is saying there. It's a greater crime for a a child to strike a parent than the reverse. 
That's actually what God is saying. And that that principle uh, goes throughout. Another way to put this. All do not have the same rights. There is not an equality of rights under biblical justice. And so biblical justice upholds the order by upholding the distinctions. Whereas social justice destroys it and always advocates for the opposite. But biblical justice says by destroying by destroying these things, you destroy the idea of justice itself. The last thing I want to look at before I uh, make a comment or two about this in, with respect to the gospel. Is the idea of servitude, and I think this is something to say to American Christians as we uh, think about our past with respect to slavery. Look specifically, specifically at the idea then of servitude. That the passage uh, uh, sheds important light upon it. The idea not just of servitude but of slavery. Once again, we, we do not find the idea of slavery is ruled out. Nor do we find this in the, in the New Testament. But what we find is that the servant-master relationship is regulated so as to protect the servant from certain abuses. But what we also see in upholding, again, what is biblical justice is that man-stealing is a capital crime. And that is something that the Lord says here in Israel, but which he also says in First Timothy chapter 1. This is something which the law specifically forbids in the Old and the New Testament alike. If you had any difficulty with this uh, in the Old Testament, wondering whether it had any relevance in the New, it does. And what that tells us is that to become a slave through man-stealing is unjust from the standpoint of the Bible. In fact, again, it's a capital crime. It's tantamount to murder. It's as wicked as murder, the Lord says. The kind of servitude or slavery that is envisioned and allowable within a biblical framework of justice is that either which is voluntary or which is the result of poverty or crime. You could become a slave as a punishment. The judge could assign you as a slave. It was actually something that happened. But man-stealing is, biblically speaking, forbidden. It is ruled out. It is unjust. Well, having made those comments, let me close by bringing this around to the gospel. I've uh, been advocating for something and we'll have more time to unfold uh, and explore these ideas. And I'll tell you, I'm not just exploring what the Bible has to say. I'm trying, uh, which is not common for me, but I'm actually trying to explore uh, the current debates. I know that they are raging in the PCA right now. They just had their general assembly. I'm going to speak to uh, one of the ministers in town who was there. Uh, but he's told me this is something that is, is still ongoing. It's very much at the forefront of the life of the PCA. It could very easily become the forefront of the life of the OPC if we're not vigilant. And so I want to explicitly repudiate social justice as uh, a false gospel uh, and uphold biblical justice. That is our interest as Christian people. We are people of the book. Biblical justice. That is something that interests all of us. But let us also see, as we're thinking of Romans, that this is not just something that is relevant to this debate that's going on in the PC and elsewhere, but that the idea of biblical justice is something that the gospel makes no sense apart from. 
If you think of what Paul is asserting in Romans, he is asserting the gospel of justification. And, uh, and there he is saying that God is just in justifying the sinner. How so? He's doing so by exercising his righteousness and his justice in bringing about our justification. That in the courtroom of God, there is true and perfect justice. And if you do not understand the justice of God, and if you reject the justice of God, guess what? You'll also reject the gospel. And that's why the social gospel is so dangerous, or what is called today the social justice gospel. It is no surprise whatsoever that such people who are advocating for these things also, in the end, repudiate and reject biblical Christianity and a biblical view of the gospel. We are dealing when we speak of the gospel, and there is no book that helps us to see this as clearly as Romans, with the courtroom of God and the justice of God. And the declaration of Paul in the book of Romans, and of all true preachers, again, is that God is just in justifying the sinner. How so? By applying the law of retribution, just Helionus, to his own beloved son on our behalf. He pays the penalty and he lives the perfect life. And his righteousness and the, forgive, and the penalty of sin being paid is imputed to us. So that God is not unjust, but just in justifying us. The justice of God is seen most clearly in all of scripture. At the cross. And that is the triumphant declaration of Romans chapter 3. That all men are guilty and held accountable before God. In the courtroom of God. According to the standard of justice we're all guilty. That's why the song of preparation was a hymn of repentance. Not of obedience. Because through the law we're all found guilty. The reality is that the capital offense is our own offense. And we are all deserving of capital punishment. But the glory of the gospel is that the retribution was laid upon another. And so we were justified. And so I say again, a perversion perversion or a false view of justice necessarily involves a false view of the gospel. Let us be clear about both so that we might uh, we might uphold uh, not only the teaching of scripture, but the best news which is found there. And that is the message of justification to guilty sinners. Amen. And let us respond to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 400.